I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. It's really simple. If you just listen to your customers, over time, they'll just tell you everything to do. Now, you have to add stuff to it, but they certainly will give you 80, 90% of your roadmap, and it becomes low risk if you have a good mechanism to listen to them and build what they're asking for because they're the customers and they, again, know what their pain points are. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Reggie Agawal is our guest today on Scaling Up, the co-founder and CEO of Cvent a $600 million revenue software company that is listed on the NASDAQ. Cvent allows organizations to more effectively and efficiently run, manage, and host all formats of events, be it virtual or in-person, and now even hybrid. And chances are, if you've been to a large conference recently, it's probably been powered by Cvent. Reggie's in a very unique position. Having founded the company in 1999, he's now seen three recessions, He's taken his company through an IPO, a SPAC, a merger, and he's seen competitors come and go, as well as everything in between. So it was a real privilege to try and piece all the important moments in history together and try and distill them into lessons for current operators. To have been at the helm of a business that has scaled from 12 people to almost 5,000, it's also required Reggie to be on his own scaling journey and to dig into how he's thought about this from someone who's consistently been voted as one of the best software CEOs in the United States. Makes for a fascinating conversation. This is probably a great podcast to pair with the previous TDM blog, What Makes a Great CEO. There's no doubt going through this conversation, you'll be able to identify many of those traits shining through. As previously mentioned, all our podcasts now have transcripts available, and you can find them at our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Reggie, welcome to the Scaling Up podcast. Absolutely a treat to have you on this show. Given the longevity of you as the leader of Cvent and the longevity of the Cvent story, I'm keen to lean into this and take a really wide lens over the last two and a bit decades. Not many CEOs I can think of have seen three recessions, bull markets, capital market crashes, IPOs, SPACs, you name it, you've seen it. But let's level set. Let's go back to the very start and hear the the founding story, I guess. You were a successful corporate lawyer. You were running a CEO networking group and you were facing some pain points and the idea of Cvent was born. Well, I appreciate the, uh, first of all, the introduction. So yeah, there is a lot of lessons. So maybe just quick on kind of start and Cvent. What I always recommend to entrepreneurs is when you start a business, it's simple. Find a pain point and create the aspirin. And, you know, I was, uh, I was actually a corporate lawyer. Ed, as you know, and what happened was I was running a nonprofit, which, you know, we were organizing events for CEOs. It was just bringing kind of the community together. This is in the, uh, around 1996. I'm from the Washington, D.C. area. Everyone's kind of getting together just to get to know the community. So I was organizing these events and, uh, and I was doing it, um, you know, kind of myself. And I was basically the meeting planner. I was the, um, uh, the secretary and the executive director at the same time. So I very quickly figured out the pain point and created the aspirin, which was Cvent. And um, once you have the idea, you kind of uh, just go full board in. And that's what I did. 
Um, I would tell you my um, first always I tell people is when you believe in something, you got to put everything into it. And that's what I did. I quickly pivoted and uh, started the company and, you know, few things. We had a rough start, as you know, we grew kind of organically. I funded it mostly myself. My parents gave me uh, kind of a little bit of startup capital. I lived at home with my parents. I actually ended up living at home till I was about uh, embarrassed to admit this, but probably to about 30 three or 34 years old. Um, I lived at home just because I was running the business, saving money and started the business, self-funded, grew to about a half a dozen of us, found you know some like-minded folks that believed in the space. And then we, uh, we grew slowly. Then a billion dollars of venture capital went in our space. And this is again now in 1999, I started it. So by 2000, the dot-com boom was in full swing. For some of your, your listeners, they might not have been around then, but it was, it was truly the, the kind of the advent of the internet and just Technology really started to boom, in particular software. Um, and so, you know, started the business. A billion dollars of venture capital went into our space, which at the time was called online event registration because we were doing, you know, organizing and managing and marketing events on behalf of organizations. So that billion dollars went in, and quickly we decided we had to raise money. So I raised seventeen million with with about a hundred investors, which I don't recommend because it's not easy to, you know, get angel investors. I had some institutional money some VC money, but a lot of them, you know, a lot of CEOs from the top companies uh, back then, probably about 20 CEOs of public companies. And so we raised 17 million and then we kind of grew from six to 125 people in a year. And again, uh, we've seen a lot of scaled up companies now, but back then, you know, that was, uh, that was pretty quick. And so uh, things went good. We were growing the business, getting customers, put out a product, getting a lot of good press. Then the perfect storm hit and the dot-com meltdown, September 11th. Um, which was a you know certainly a tragedy uh, across the globe and in particular in the U.S. And then uh, the reality hit. Uh, we had blown through 16.6 million of that 17 million dollars, and we were about on the verge of bankruptcy. So I cut 80 percent of my staff, and so that was my first recession to experience as a professional. And so we cut 80 percent of our staff, and it was an extraordinarily difficult time. But what I realized is. You know, you grow more on the way down than you you do on the way up. And that's definitely a big lesson that I learned. Another lesson I learned is that, you know, the most important thing is is your people. So I always say the DNA of your company is your people. That's really your differentiator because you can't get through these kind of difficult times as an entrepreneur unless you have a team around you that supports you. So anyways, we fortunately didn't raise any more money, just said we're going to hunker down and we're going to focus on, you know, three things, which is hire the best people build the best products and listen to our customers. And that that culture, that kind of mantra is the same mantra that we still believe today. So 21 years later, we have the same mantra because you know we slowly started growing. We didn't raise any more capital. Then what ended up happening is, is that we slowly started building the business up and we really didn't raise any outside capital until we went public. And that was in 2011. And again, along those ways, there were lots of lessons learned. If I had to pick a couple of them, I would say the DNA of your companies, your people. Find a pain point, you know, and create the aspirin. And then I would say focus. Too many people try to do too many things, become the best in one area, learn the lessons there, then go to the next, and then go to the next. And I think too many people try to go too fast in too many areas instead of becoming the best in one thing. And then once you become the best in that, then that's when you start doing other areas. And then you can move faster later on because you have that foundation. You've touched on probably five or six of the topics that hopefully we can work through over the next half an hour. Maybe just to give people a sense of the size and scale of the business, as you say, 22 years later, over $600 million of revenue, making over $100 million in adjusted EBITDA, have been profitable on a non-GAAP basis for a long time, which in this day and age is a rarity. Maybe we can 
touch on the product evolution over time and something you mentioned that we can maybe pull out is is getting good at one thing and then layering in product over time to make sure that you're servicing the market. You've always talked about customer centricity and that customer ultimately being the CMO, the chief marketing officer of the companies that you are dealing with. C-Event today, if there's a large-scale conference, the chances are that you are servicing that conference. It's obviously taken a long time to get here, so maybe just working through some product evolution, how you thought about layering in that utility for the customer over what has been a, a long journey. Yeah, look, when you're kind of looking at the evolution of your product, like I said, it literally starts again with the first thing, which is find a pain point, create the aspirin. And that's what we did. So we were kind of a, a, we didn't think so at the time, but we were a point solution. Different times then than it is now, because we were certainly one of the, the earliest SaaS companies. Because when I started the company in 99, we were a SaaS company. At the time, it was called ASP. It was certainly one of the, with the early generation. So what I would say is, you know, once you find that pain point, what we did is we were kind of a point solution. We solved a specific pain, which was online event registration. And I'll give you a couple of thoughts on that. Again, it's not just coming up with the product. It's also looking at your GTM, your go-to-market strategy. So what we did is we are very focused. So we did online event registration, domestic. We didn't focus globally. We just said domestic. We actually used to have a phrase, which is, it's just as sexy to sell in Buffalo as it is Paris. And there's a lot of people in Buffalo that still haven't bought our product. So forget talking about Europe and so forth. My view is you don't actually go international to you're close to 100 million. Just a lesson. So many people go at 20 million. I'm like, oh, you're going to struggle because your means your core business isn't big enough. So anyways, we started with the point solution. And then once we became, you know, a market leader in that, then we started to evolve. And then we started adding other solutions that our customers were telling you. It's really simple. If you just listen to your customers, over time, they'll just tell you everything to do. Now, you have to add stuff to it because, you know, customers give you a good vision. Sometimes they don't completely, but they certainly will give you 80, 90% of your roadmap if you just listen to them. And it becomes low risk if you have a good mechanism to listen to them and build what they're asking for because they're the customers and they, again, know what their pain points are. And so then what we did is we kind of eventually evolved from a point solution. We added more and more products to eventually we became a platform. That took us a long time, though. You don't just build a platform out of the gate. If it's a true platform, it takes, in my view, years to build, especially in our space. And then, you know, we've had a bunch of pivots, as you know, then the pandemic hit. And so 95% of our revenue was affiliated with in-person events, you know, live events in person. And so we had a pivot and develop a virtual product. And uh, it took us about six months. We were able to pivot to add that as part of our platform. And again, when it goes to what your product strategy is, for us, the platform was everything. So it took us longer to develop our virtual than most other companies because we had it integrated on top of our existing platform, which just complicates it. But it's the right thing because it's integrated, built with the same technology. And we continue to pivot, which I'm happy to discuss. But historically, Point Solution evolved to a platform over time. It does take a while to do it. Again, what we did is focused our GTM strategy on kind of domestic. And then we did mid-market. We didn't go into the enterprise until about 10 years after I started the company because Mid-market's different than enterprise features. And so when you pick that product and pick the right target segment, become really good into it, expand in those different segments, then start developing also other products to add. That was kind of what we did, and it worked really well for us. 
Yeah, the, the two things to call out probably from my end, uh, 2008, you're talking about becoming a platform, and, and one thing you did was layer on this two-sided network, which at the time was called the Cvent Supplier Network, is now called the Hospitality Cloud, which basically connects event planners with hotels and other venues, and you know over the last 15 years has been able to add 300,000 venues, I think, or close to, and it creates demand for these hotels and so you know layering on this platform utility has been really important in terms of developing this platform over time yeah so a couple thoughts look when you build a product and scale it and you know one of the things i didn't answer in your question by the way was scale so right now we're about 1400 employees around the globe we have about 21,000 customers you know corporate organizational customers and so, again, we now operate at scale and we're all over the world, off offices in many countries, but our two biggest offices are in uh, New Delhi or in India, and then our, our headquarters is in McLean, Virginia, uh, which is right outside of D.C. But having said that, one of the things we did to expand our point solution to become a platform, as you mentioned, was to create a marketplace. So we connect meeting planners with venues. What I like to say to people, it's kind of like bookings.com. And, you know, when you're looking for a venue, we're that for meeting planners. And so just to put a perspective in 2019, we did about $18 billion worth of uh, business. It's called a request for proposals. I won't get into the detail, but $18 billion worth of volume went through our system. The first nine months of this year, of 2022, we're at about 75% of what we were in 2019, which was our you know, historical high. So we're on a good track because every quarter is getting better and better it's starting to grow. But getting back to the main thesis, it was trying to not only solve a customer pain point, but again, to create that platform. Because in the end, we believe that the companies that truly are able to scale have a platform because customers want one throat to choke across their whole process in a particular sector, which is in our case, event management. You touched on this very quick and necessary pivot to virtual as basically every in-person event got shut down. And that took some know-how and, and technological capability. And we'll work through that maybe a bit later. But one thing I did want to call out was it allowed you to do something very hard, and that is run hybrid events. And so in this day and age where traditionally your competitors have been virtual only and you've been in person, to merge those two experiences is not an easy thing to do. And to be able to come out of the pandemic, out of the necessity of having a virtual offering to now offer hybrid events really has become a, a core competitive advantage. Virtual, obviously, as everyone knows, became king. It was very difficult since we didn't have a product. So it took us about six months to launch, as I mentioned. And um, we were learning from it because we had not done virtual. And it is different than doing in-person. What we learned is in-person is much more sophisticated and complicated than virtual. But that doesn't mean virtual wasn't tough. So it took us some time to get it out. Luckily, we we're able to pivot. And I think that's a lot to do with the DNA of our company because our, you know, my leadership team, uh, I have now seven of my original 10, you know, from back 20 years ago, they're still with me. And we've gone through the 01, the 08 recession, and then now the pandemic. So this is our third kind of pivot, if you will, or difficult time. And so then we were able to do that. It, it took us some time. We have great relationships with our customers, but I'll tell you, we also had what we call multi-year deals. You know, as a SaaS company, we signed a lot of multi-year deals, about half. That gave us a little bit of time to be able to create our virtual product. And it takes a little bit of time to get to become a, a market leader. But in the end, um, we believe we became a market leader in that. But what our benefit was, as you mentioned, is, is that we built virtual on top of our in-person. So you could do in-person events, 
virtual events and hybrid events and pivot between that, which is in particular becomes important if there's a recession that sometimes you want to go from an in-person event, which is more costly because you got to pay for you know, food and, and people flying in and, and so forth. If you want to do it virtually, it's generally about 10 or 20% of the cost. So let's say it's a, you have an event for a hundred grand or a million, you could do it for probably less than a hundred if it's virtual. Now there's pros and cons, like the engagement's not as good in virtual versus uh, in person. But the, the point is the CFO can work with the CMO to kind of pivot events to either, again, virtual or hybrid or, or in-person, whatever they want. And that's now become an additional part of our platform to be able to call what we call three arrows in your quiver. When you target someone, you can say, hey, whatever way you want to meet and the way you want to engage with your customers or your employees or your partners, we believe we can provide that platform. And so again, moving to a platform has been a real help for us and a differentiator compared to our you know, competitors. And by the way, I should mention, there's 1,400 event technology companies around the world. By the way, if you took 10 years ago, there was probably like 12 or 1,300. So it's always been a pretty busy space because about a trillion dollars a year is spent on meetings and events globally. That's business events. It's a big space, a lot of interesting thing to digitize it. And the platform is why we think is the right way to go. If anyone that listens to your earnings calls, you, you call it the triple threat. Yeah, the triple threat. I'm glad you're listening there, Ed. Exactly. Listening with interest. Uh, but just to pick up on something that you just mentioned then, it is something I, I want to cover. A massive market. But you've, over time, really found a, a durable and sustainable rate of growth. And you've seen fly-by-night companies raise a huge amount of capital very quickly and, and spend it. And, and you had that experience right at the start of your business, as you mentioned, almost blew you up. These businesses have been blown up over time. And so I'm keen to understand this tension of profitability and growth over time. As I said, you've taken a really long-term view here, knowing how big the market is and understanding how you can grow into it sustainably. To me, that takes a lot of egoless decision-making. I'm keen to work through this tension, what you've learned over time and, and how you've reconciled these two factors. It's a great question. So again, it's been 22, 23 years. So here's what I've learned. And I wish you could visually see me because I, I like doing it with my hand. But this is what happens. Let's just say a company's worth a billion dollars. I'm holding my hand to the left and then I'm watching it kind of go up, 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 like the, the hand is moving. And then it goes all of a sudden to 5 billion. And then all of a sudden, people realize it's way overvalued and it gets reset to a billion. And it just slowly goes back to five, then resets. So the reason I'm bringing this as an analogy is, is that investors, you know, sometimes do things where you all of a sudden, just literally six months later, a company's worth one third the value or one fifth the value that it was six months ago, even though fundamentally nothing changed with that company. That's going to continue to happen. Right now, we're in the part where it's worth a billion again. But trust me, it will once again go up in time once we work through the recession. And then there'll be probably a little overzealousness about it's going to be worth this much and it'll get reset. That's what we see in every cycle. So having lived through it now three times, um, my view is you always have to have a balanced approach. And that balanced approach is my view is like, you don't go to the extremes, which is like right now, some people are having knee-jerk reactions and cutting everything. And they're going too deep because just a few months ago, they were hiring like crazy. So it's all extremes and nothing in life is good when you do extremes. It's always balance. And so our view is we've always had a balanced approach to profitability, you know, cash flow in particular. We've always been focused on cash flow as a company because I mentioned we didn't raise outside capital since 2001 until we went public. So that created a DNA. 
Now, on the other hand, during a difficult time like now, my view, this is what I saw in 01. This is what we saw in 08. This is what we've seen now in the pandemic is that it's a great time to take permanent market share. Everyone's cutting back. And not that we have to be very thoughtful. We're always a frugal company. And I'll just give you an example, Ed. Look, I'm the CEO of a public company and we still fly economy everywhere. That's never changed. It's not an urban legend. Until we went public in 13, we would share rooms, including me. When we travel, it's the DNA of the company, which is I'd rather put that 300 bucks into product or customer service or sales and marketing. And so it's it's that frugal DNA because it's, you know, when a founder-led companies, there's always pros and cons. One of the positives is we're just built because we remember the difficult times. But having said all this, it's that balance of not going too extreme. And what happens with a lot of investors, they'll say, you got to, you know, you got to become profitable in two quarters, which is very difficult to do if you've been negative 20%. So I think people go to extremes. And I think my advice to entrepreneurs is keep a balance. Don't have to go to extremes because you never went to an extreme yourself, both in terms of running your business and in terms of what you think your value is, because fundamentally it always goes back to kind of somewhere in the middle over time. So that's why I believe that my, you know, kind of recommendations to people is always find that balance. Right now, the balance is EBITDA. So make sure you're more focused on it. And I think that that is important. But for us, it's not a huge shift because we knew a recession eventually would come. It's been a decade, more than a decade. So it was just always thinking it's going to happen. But we just went through a pandemic. And for us personally, as a company, you know, we just went through what I call a category five hurricane, earthquake, and flood all at the same time. It was not a 100-year storm. It was a 200-year storm for our business since we were all in person. But now we view the potential recession as a, you know, a bad tropical storm. We've been through three bad things. This will be the fourth and we're ready for it. And we believe it's a good time to take permanent market share. And that's kind of what we want to run our business frugally, profitably, uh, but also keeping an eye on that, hey, this is a good time to take that market share where competitors are focusing on either survival or focusing on over-indexing a little bit more than probably they should in terms of not investing. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. How do you reconcile over time the emotional roller coaster? I imagine it would be to see some of these competitors that raise a huge amount of money very quickly and and grow very quickly and acquire companies and all of a sudden here's Cvent the dominant player in the space not necessarily being attacked from a market share point of view but from a funding point of view from a, a marketing budget point of view and yet you've just managed to find your sustainable growth rate while these businesses are out I don't know trying to grow at 100 200 percent a year and eat Cvent's lunch in the, in the process and ultimately in many cases blow up. That must be hard as a founder to see. Uh, you're probably referring to there's a company in our space that raised about a billion bucks on about an $8 billion valuation. And, and um, look, we have some great competitors. Uh, they did some really interesting things. Um, you know, it was difficult when we were going public on our SPAC. That came up in every conversation. And so, again, this is where you take back from your experience, which is be balanced. And it just never makes sense to raise that kind of money. You know, my mom taught me a lesson. I remember when I started Cvent. You know, we were losing a lot of money again when we first started. I raised that 17 million and like I mentioned, I almost went bankrupt. She would say to me, Boy, you're spending a lot of money. Shouldn't you be 
building something that costs less than what you're selling it for. And I said to her, mom, you don't know what you're talking about. It's all about market share. It's all about market share. This is during the dot-com boom. Same lesson now, which is, you know, never for a mid to long-term build something more than what it costs for you to sell. So what I will tell you is that we knew those fundamentals. These are 5,000-year tenants of commerce, right? It doesn't matter what industry, what sector, over time, they will correct. We were getting a lot of pressure from a lot of investors, from a lot of different people. And my view is it's, it will balance. Again, not that you don't do some stuff that you have to react, but in the end, the fundamental is it will all come back to the middle in the end, which is a balance between growth and profit. And it obviously depends on your space and where you are in your in your company. But you know, my view is, is, is that we thought we were investing a good amount and it was the right balance because you know when you do that, there's too many stories of people being burnt. And what happened to a lot of companies, not just in our space, but in other sectors, you see these unicorns, they're not really unicorns, and they created bad fundamentals. And now it's really difficult when you have a culture of bad fundamentals and not appreciating you know, free cash flow, um, which gives you like your own personal budget. It gives you discipline. So look, having said that, you know, fortunately we've been through it a bunch of times and, you know, our big view is just keep it balanced and don't violate the fundamental rules of business for too long. That's an excellent tip for any entrepreneur, founder and executive listening to this podcast. We've touched on it briefly here, but your journey through the capital markets, as I said at the top, I can't think of another CEO that's been through venture capital, you know, growth capital at times, an IPO, been taken private as you were by Vista in, in 2016, and then came back to the public markets as a SPAC. Oh, and, and, and all with the same team. All with the same team. We'll get onto that. I guess what I am interested in, this is a unique voice and a unique perspective, particularly around the IPO process and the SPAC process. And you know, SPACs have become a little bit of a dirty word in, in many regards, but they had their time and place for, for whatever reason. Maybe just a, a moment to compare and contrast your own experiences of, of things that caught you off guard that you didn't know about either of those processes because not many people get to do it once, let alone compare either experience. Yeah. So listen, um, since I've been through an IPO and I know that it's you know one of the greatest journeys that a businessman or woman can do is to go through that process. And it, it's extraordinary. I, don't, I think anyone will tell you the whole process of going public is probably one of the most difficult things, stressful, especially for the CEO. You know, and for a CFO, because you're, you know, everything's on the line. You've been working in our case, went public in 13 the first time. You know, we've been working 13 years to this day. And then all of a sudden you're you're meeting with investors over two weeks. They meet with you for an hour and you're they're trying to make decisions to invest, you know, 10 or 20 million in an hour. And it was always kind of fascinating that that's all it, you know, that's what it is. But when we went um public again with the SPAC, you know, I had thought that a SPAC is easier. That's what people thought. And let me be clear with you. And I'm a, not 99% sure, I'm 101% sure that a SPAC is harder than going IPO, way harder. The easy thing with an IPO, you, it's difficult to prepare, but in the end, you meet with investors over, it's usually seven business days, and they meet with you for an hour. A, a SPAC process is a lot more difficult. You're getting a sponsor, choose the right sponsor. In our case, we picked Dragoneer, which was regarded as one of the best long-only hedge funds in the tech industry. But we had to talk to, we talked to eight firms to pick that one, and then they do due diligence. And then you talk to investors and then you go, I won't go through all the details, but it's difficult to do. So that's number one is the biggest lesson is a SPAC is super hard, way harder than an IPO. Why did we do a SPAC though? It's simple. Look at it, we had a negative growth rate. <laughs> like it was in July when we finished our SPAC. July 21, 
But if you looked at our Q1 and when we were on the on our roadshow, we had a negative growth rate because this is Q1 of 21. So as a in-person meetings focused company, you can imagine how hard the pandemic hit us. So we were negative growth in Q1, negative growth in Q2. Then we started to turn positive in Q3, and then we ended up growing 20% in Q4 of last year. And then you know this year, the projections is about 21% for 22 or a little, maybe a little higher. But the point is, we chose this back because one, we can meet with investors multiple times because they had to get to know our story because the story didn't look good. And I would ask you, Ed, have you ever heard of a SaaS company going public that had a negative growth rate the year before? No. Number two, we can put our projections for multiple years out. And um, you can't really do that during an IPO process. So they can kind of believe, you know, this is, hey, what's going to happen? Don't just focus on the history, focus on the next few years. And the third thing is we got some great partners, Dragoneer. Zoom became one of our biggest investors, and you can't get usually a strategic to invest, a partner to invest during an IPO usually. So there was multiple reasons why we did it. We did it for the right reasons because the SPAC was created for a company like us. Obviously, they have a bad reputation because 90% of the SPACs were kind of um, companies that couldn't go public the traditional way. Ours was, of course, a step back, but that was more because of the pandemic, not because fundamentally we weren't a strong business and a mature business and mature, not meaning high growth, but mature, meaning we'd been around for a long time and been public before. So that's why we did the SPAC. But in the end, you know, IPO is a lot easier than a SPAC. I know people don't realize that, but we're glad we did it because I think the results was good. You know, right now we're kind of trading in a pandemic potentially for a recession. So it's like, sometimes we say, when are we going to catch a break? <laughs> you know, because it's been a tough couple of years. Was the plan always to come to market around 2021, be it as an IPO or a SPAC, irrespective of the pandemic, and, and that's what forced the hand around the SPAC? Yeah, I mean, look, when Vista bought us and took us private at the end of 16, you know, we were building the business. We invested a lot. We built a whole new platform. Unlike a typical P transaction where they try to extract EBITDA, ours was the opposite. We invested heavily because they had a, a good longer-term view on it. So that's number one. Whenever you do an IPO, you're, if they're a good partner, which Vista is a great partner, they ask us, hey, do you want to keep running or there's opportunity to do other things? And so my team you know, was very excited to keep running. We think we have a huge opportunity. We worked hard to pivot, obviously, to go into virtual. We think it, our team has definitely expanded with the pandemic because just look at anyone's interaction with events. It's grown. The number of events have grown because now you can do a virtual 100-person event where people didn't really do that that much before the pandemic. And again, now events have become more important. People appreciate them. So our kind of view and going public was it wasn't necessarily that's the way we were looking towards it. But as everything transpired and, and kind of how things kind of went, it made a lot of sense because the public markets were certainly valuing companies who were, you know, good, strong growth, high growth, and certainly a little, uh, balanced that with, a, with EBITDA. And again, there could have been other opportunities we did, but we thought this made the best bet because this was a, a great way for us to continue running. And we thought it was the best way for you know shareholder value. And I'll be honest, on a personal level, like I said, I think we were excited about continuing to run. And so we did it. And uh, of course, you never wish for a recession after you go public because it's, it's more difficult to go through those things when you're public than when you're private because people can't see your stock price, including your employees every day. And that creates a different set of challenges. Indeed. The last capital markets question I've got is around this private transaction you alluded to. Vista took CVEN off the public boards in 2016, you know, a very famous technology investor, wholly owned the business. They're famous for these playbooks that they run. 
usually it doesn't involve the CEO or founder that they've just bought, but of course they were enamored with you. I think you were voted the, the best CEO in their portfolio for a couple of years running, so you managed to keep your job. Over that time, you mentioned you replatformed the entire technology stack. You merged with the largest competitor to create the beast that CVEN is today. That must have been not just an exciting time, but a challenging time from a scaling systems and process, not just the cultural merger, but the systems as well. Can you give some color as to what that looked like from the inside out? Yeah, look, it's it's difficult because we went private. Our biggest competitor at the time was a company called Lanyon. We believe we were at the time the market leader or a market leader, and we viewed them as our biggest competitor. And they were at one point bigger than us, but over time, Vista had bought them a few years prior. And over time, we became the, you know, we believed we became the biggest player. And so a couple things, when Vista bought us, the good news is they knew our space well because they own Lanyon. And I'll tell you another thing we had a little easy. They saw us do really well and execute and mostly primarily organically. They were more an inorganic growth play. So they saw us organically execute and kind of founder led. And when I say founder, not just me, but I'm going to say founders, because I have a lot of other folks that have been with me for a long time. And so I think going into it, they really had a healthy respect. And look, Vista has a playbook. You know, they invented it. They were definitely the first people, in my view, on scale to have an operating plan. And what they had is that they have a huge group. And, you know, now it's about 300 people. And these range from McKinsey to BCG to Bain folks to, you know, Accenture to consulting all the way to operators to former bankers, just like the whole ecosystem are part of the operating. And so us, we were really excited about it because there was a lot we could learn. And it's not just calling up a friend who's another CEO of another company and sharing things. I mean, we were all 100% owned by Vista. So think of us as divisions. So what happened is we have these get-togethers two, three times a year, for example, the CEOs. They bring the CFOs together. They bring the CXOs together. So a lot of interconnecting and best practice sharing. And I'll tell you what's helpful for me is when Vista says, hey, you know, we've owned 200 companies. Here are the four or five things that are really driving their growth or driving their operation efficiency that we think apply to Cvent. And then all of a sudden you get data. You get people who've taken people through it. So we learned a lot. And I'll tell you, my team, I hope we say we're agile. We know that there's tons of stuff we're doing wrong and that we could learn. And it's like, what better way than to have truly a partner that has scaled, that has seen this multiple times and is very open because we also did a lot of the lessons that they had. We already were operating in a lot of them. Look, in 17, we won company of the year after the first year where I think we were the first company to ever win that because usually it takes a few years to operationalize to way Vista likes. We got it the first year. Because they saw that we ran this way. And I think a lot of it's because of the lessons we learned and the, you know, almost going bankrupt in 01 and then going through the 08, same team. And we we did a lot of the best practices internally. And some of them we'd scaled more than they seen any other company. But having said that, there was a lot we could learn from them. And, you know, it's been great as a partner with them because at the end, they just are unemotional. They do things logically, which is what as a business person, you want a partner who's unemotional, just do it logically with information, but also has a little bit of trust and the team they have lets you have leeway. And Vista's very good at that, which is why almost out of my top 50 executives, this is now six years later, I think I probably have 80 to 85% out of my top 50. And so look, it's been a good partnership and a lot of lessons learned and it's never easy, but we've been super excited to have partners with them. And they really take into account the way we look at things on a long-term play. It's a great call out. And, and I think the lessons for other executives is just understanding what those four or five very simple things that move the needle for your business are. And Vista, as you say, have a knack of having the pattern recognition to, to understand that. 
Let's get on to people and culture. I know it's something that you're very passionate about, something you've touched on right throughout this. Seven of your 10 key executives have been over the entire journey. That is unheard of in the world of technology. There must be some light and shade to this though, the tenure of the executive team. The light to me is clear. I've, as you know, come from a sporting history and, and there was a, a great rugby player who's done some fantastic studies and, and helps businesses around cohesion because that has been proven to move the dial largely for team out performance. And so having people in the same seats over long periods of time, their ways of working are so cohesive that you very quickly understand how each and everyone can add value to the business. So the, I think the light of this tenure is clear. What's the other side to that? What have you had to manage the CEO to make sure that these seven people who have been there from the start have really continued to contribute to the C-Vent journey? I mean, look, the first thing is, you know, we all were aligned in where we wanted the company. We wanted to scale. Like we weren't in this for not scaling. So I'll give you a quick story. When the business almost uh, went bankrupt in 2001, you know, we could have taken outside capital. But one of my um, investors and one of my board members said, hey, Reggie, listen, you got $17 million and you blew through it. And we built a $1.6 million revenue company. That's it. And we had 400000 in the bank and uh, $1.6 million of revenue. So he said, you could do a couple of things. You could try to raise more money. Or what you could do is really make this thing work because you spent enough money and see if this thing really has legs to grow organically. And again, this is back in 01 where funding of that size was a lot. And so I asked my whole team, do you want to stick around and do this? Uh, because I, I had to personally sign some debt and I won't go through the details, um, but I had to personally sign on some stuff to keep it in order to, to get a little bit more capital, just a little bit. They said, you have to personally sign. And so I asked my team and they had to really think, is this something I believe in? And they did. So you start with that foundation, they believe, and what they want to do is scale. So everything we did was geared towards candidly scaling the business. We had big, big, ambitious kind of goals. And I think at the end of the day, everyone's the CEO of their own book of business. That's what I said. Like they all run their businesses. We're all entrepreneurs. And I really mean this, Ed. I really do allow them to be their CEO. People think micromanaging. Of course, we all get into areas. But but I think one thing CVent's done is the core thing is you basically get like seven CEOs. And uh, it's more than that now. And they run their businesses. We obviously work together. But I think that's number one is create an entrepreneurial culture and then let them be the CEO of their own book of business. So like my CTO, Dave, who's you know one of the co-founders, he runs technology. And I let him do that. A lot of CEOs start micromanaging it. Now, I'm not a technology background, so it's harder for me to do that because I never knew how to code. But as an example, Dave makes the calls. Now, of course, I get involved. But when you give people responsibility, and, and I really believe that, tell them what you want and maybe a little bit how you want it, but then get out of the way and let them do it. Look, our mantra is always the same. Hire the best people, build the best products, and listen to your customers. And we've always just done that. And I'd look through these journeys of going up and down. It's embedded in our culture and our soul, who Cvent is, at least I feel comfortable, certainly for me. But I think for my core management team, Cvent is their second family. And I really mean that. And so you, you just don't give up. So that's why we went through difficult times. You don't give up on your family. You don't give up because it's, it's much more important to you than just creating wealth. It's much deeper than that. And so I think all those things aligned. I got lucky finding these kind of people that stuck with us. And, you know, look, steel is forged with fire, right? Steel is forged with fire. And I think that fire, it goes with the connections we have as a leadership team. And I'm going to tell you, I couldn't have done it without them. 
it was difficult in 01 when we're about to go bankrupt. And it was it was some difficult times. And having the team around me really was helpful during the pandemic. I mean, 95% of our business all of a sudden could have went away. So all these things continue to forge us, which is why, you know, I think people stuck around. And the only lesson I say there is always align with your mid and long-term goals with the executives that you hire. And so that's kind of what we did. Speaking of hiring the best people, some of the secret sauce that you mentioned is this New Delhi office. And part of me thinks when you went long into India, and there's obviously a, a background there for you culturally, but it was about how can we find cheap labor? But over the last 20 years, India has become such a talent hub for computer science and, and engineering that it's actually become a deep competitive advantage. I'm keen to dig into that. I'm also keen to understand how you've instilled the Cvent values in an office that is not necessarily familiar with the US-centric culture that Cvent had become. I love talking about R&D office because I think we've done something different that almost no company has done. I shouldn't say none, but very few. So let me first say, we, you know, we have a saying at Cvent, we went to India for cost, we stayed there for value, and we're investing and growing because of innovation. Because it takes a long time, just like building a company culture, it takes a long time to build that. So number one, we're at a point where our India office is definitely not just for cost by any means. It really is for driving innovation and value. And let me just I'll talk about that in a second. So how do we, first of all, do that? How did you take it from a cost-centric thing to a value-centric and an innovation-centric? So the first thing, you invest in time. Personally, I'm Indian. And look, I was very fortunate that my wife was from Delhi. She moved to the US when she was uh, seven, but she has our family there. I have my family there. So when we opened the office in uh, 2002, for the first 13 years, I went for two straight months to India. Like how many CEOs go two months to India to build it? Not like, you know, a trip every quarter for a week. It's two months, boom, eight weeks I was there. My wife would come with me and uh, made it a family event. My parents would come because they were semi-retired. And so it was, you know, on a personal level, it was great. And then I have such a great team in the U.S. At the time, I said, you guys kind of run the business. Obviously, I'm involved a little bit, but I'm going to focus on India. So I took it under my wing, if, if I had to say, to grow the business. But the first thing is the first kind of five, 600 people, I probably interviewed and hired, you know, 60 or 70% of them. Like I literally, when I went there for eight weeks, was just about hiring. Because my view is, you know, I can talk to 10 customers, 20 customers. That doesn't scale a business. What scales a business is I hire 100 people. We could each talk to 50 customers and you get the point. So it was all about getting the tree trunk straight, hire the right people. And then once that happens, then they can hire the next set. And if you don't do it right the first time, you can never figure it out. It's just too difficult to see if you have a weak DNA in your team because you don't know who's strong and weak. So on a personal level, I was very involved. And of course, the, the head of the divisions were interviewing their people, not just me. So that was kind of the first thing is bring that US culture by having that continuous kind of involvement. And it wasn't just me, by the way. Over time, as we scaled, we would send almost 100 Americans to India every year to instill with them the, the culture. And you know, as we opened our European office, the Europeans would go there. And then we'd bring 100 people from India to the US for eight weeks and instill that culture. Because there is very, it is a different. And they were still evolving and a lot, not a lot of sophisticated processes. India was known for kind of consumer call centers. And they were known for technology and kind of commoditized technology. And so then we did this kind of investment of bringing them. And what the output was, is we have a team now, we've had people with us for 15 years, you know, 18 years, 12 years. Look, it takes five years to build a really sophisticated office. And here's the last thing we did. 
I hadn't heard of people doing it because I've interviewed literally over 10,000 people probably in India, in, in New Delhi in particular, in a place called Gurgaon. But the other thing we did is we replicated almost every division in India from the US. So I'll give you just the simplest example. My EA has an EA in India. Okay. Why? Because my EA costs X amount. I'm like, hey, I don't need you to do my expense reports. I don't need you to do that. We'll get someone in India to do that. So that's where you get the cost. But then over time, that EA evolves. And then now one of the first people that did that is now supporting you know, our directors who normally not get an EA or a senior director at our company, but now they do because we can do it cost effectively. But what it does is it's strategic leverage because now they save four hours a week because again, very few directors or senior directors at a company get an EA. Even a lot of VPs don't get EAs at a lot of companies. Now that's a tactical example. A strategic example is as we went global, especially like in Australia, India kind of runs the marketing. We have an office, as you know, Ed in Australia, but they support them and client services and so forth. So every division has been replicated from technology to client services to finance. And we're able to do things we just couldn't do before because you know it was too expensive. But more importantly now, it doesn't matter. They're helping drive the strategic uh, direction of the company. And I would put them as one of our big secret sauces that we've taken a long time to build. But again, it's, it takes a lot of investment and time to do it. And certainly in these high inflation times, it's been helpful, but more importantly, strategic. Fascinating dissection. Thanks for, for sharing such depth and color. My last question, and you'll probably start to blush at this, but is about your own personal growth. The list is long as to awards you've won, be it best SaaS CEO or top five CEO in America. I know you don't have the ego to necessarily talk about the awards, but I am keen to understand what in your mind makes a great CEO. What are the soft skills? What are the hard skills? And, and what's the growth required over time to have the tenure that allows for companies like yours to flourish how it has? You know, look, I think it's really just one thing, which is first realizing that the CEO is the, is the figurehead, maybe even the talking head, but it's not the company. The company is the people, and I really mean that, and it's your leadership team. And in order to scale, you need 15, 20, 30 CEOs. And, and that's just on the CEO level. Then you need that next layer. And so it's all about creating an entrepreneurial culture and if you create an entrepreneurial culture where everyone thinks like the business is their own, I should define an entrepreneur as an entrepreneur within a company, right? And so that means that they have a value system that isn't just rules-based. They do things that are make not only common sense, but they treat, let's say, for example, the money of the company like their own personal. So their decision-making process is different because of that. But you also have to reward that. You have to recognize if they're that DNA that feels like this is their company and you want to encourage them. So anyone can, for example, argue with me. I'm a debater by nature, by the way, Ed. You're a lawyer. Yeah, I'm, I'm a former <laughs> lawyer, but I really like to debate because I enjoy it. First of all, I don't look at it as like, who are you to question me? When you allow that culture where anyone can question anyone, it really is about not just building a great team, but letting them make mistakes and learn from it, but also drive decisions. Because in the end, how do you beat a company? that has hundreds of people who think that they're the CEO of the company or a high-level executive at the company that can drive change. Because what we all want is impact. Like you ask anyone on a personal level, why does someone who's made a billion dollars, which isn't me, by the way, <laughs> but someone who's made a billion dollars, why are they continue working? And they do it because they want to make impact, be appreciated, of course, but make impact. And so you let people make impact that and, and and getting the right DNA and alignment and creating entrepreneur, those are kind of the things that I think have really been the reason we've been able to have this longevity, been able to pivot so much and, you know, have kind of stayed pretty consistent in everything we do because 
If someone thinks that the business is their money, they're going to do a better job and they're going to make better decisions. Totally agree with that. Is there one specific call out about your own journey of something that you've had to change over 20 years to allow you to scale? Because it takes a rare founder to go from 12 people to 4,000 and still do the job that you're doing. I appreciate the question. Look, here's what I'll tell you. You know, some entrepreneurs create a great product and it scales quickly because they were first mover advantage and it scaled. Doesn't mean they're not great entrepreneurs, but sometimes it's the product they built. They got out early. Look, we've had a difficult journey. We've had pivots. We've almost went bankrupt. There's three proverbs I live by. Fall down seven times, get up eight times. Be persistent and consistent. And then the last one is hire the best people. And um, those are kind of all the the final things that I, when I look back at my journey, things that I've personally grown to do and to recognize. And as a CEO, I had lots of things I need to improve. I still have lots of things I need to improve. Surround yourself with some good mentors and coaches. And a lot of my changes happen with my own team because they have strengths and weaknesses. I have strengths and weaknesses. And if you kind of evolve together, people know those strengths and weaknesses. And if they feel comfortable giving you that feedback, that's how you continue to personally grow. That's great, Carla. Reggie, you're as pumped up today as I've seen you over the last decade. So there's still some runway to go in not only you, but Cvent as a business. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for joining us on Scaling Up. Well, thanks, Ed. I appreciate it. And best of luck. <laughs>